You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. My name is Breach Burke. I am your host, uh, as always. And this week, we are finally starting our discussion of the uh, dark Hindu mothers. Um, We had three weeks of sort of introduction, trying to sort of explain the background of uh, Hindu belief and and ritual and puja. Um, And then, of course, talking about the scriptures that relate to um, these dark mothers and also uh, to the the worship of the Sri Chakra, um, which is kind of a central feminine symbol that represents the uh, creation of the universe. It's the the merging of Shiva Shakti. So now we are actually going to get into the discussion of the uh, specific deities, the Mahavidyas and the Matrikas. And this week we are going to start with probably the the central Mahavidya, uh, who is the goddess Kali. Okay, Kali, um, now we're going to talk about who she is, which is um, actually a rather... um, I don't want to say it's a it's not a difficult question to answer but it's it's a much she's she's more than just one thing and I think what I want to want to do is focus on I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about first about um, you know more or less describing who she is uh, and a little bit of the background of where she's first seen in scriptures and and so forth and then I'll then I kind of want to talk about um, the different stories surrounding her and then also all of her different, um, you know, kind of try to focus on her different aspects and the importance of those. Um, now, uh, Kali comes from the word Kala, okay? Kala is the uh, Sanskrit word for time, okay? So Kali, I mean, not, it, it's a feminine form, but it also has to do with the devouring of time, okay? Um, <clears throat> and uh, there's an association with blackness there, as well, um, sort of the void. Uh, uh, Alan Watts had I, I posted this on the um, I think on the Facebook my Facebook page for Cathonia, and I think possibly also on Twitter. Um, there's a link to the um, you know Alan Watts's um, you know God is a black female, and um, that's one of the th- he and he's talking specifically about Kali. And this aspect of Kali, she's the devouring of time. She's the void, she's the abyss. Okay. Um, having said that as well, so she's she's kind of a de- a destructive feminine element, sort of. But she is also um, sort of the uh, fundamental uh, image, you know, Shakti image. I'm just going to read very briefly. Um, I, I'm not going to rely on Wikipedia for this one, but it's just. Um, you know, be- being that Kali is, is something I'm, I don't know, I've been so intimately involved with Kali, I don't feel like I need to do that. But it's, um, the way that they describe her just briefly in their introduction, um, Kali's earliest appearance is that of a destroyer of evil forces. She's the most powerful form of Shakti and the goddess of one of the four subcategories of the Kula Marga, a category of tantric Shaivism, um, <clears throat> which is Shiva worship. Uh, over time, Kali has been worshipped by devotional movements and tantric sects variously as the Divine Mother, the Mother of the Universe, Adi Shakti, or Adi Parashakti. Now, Adi Parashakti is the 
supreme primal mover. So Kali as the supreme primal force of the universe. Okay. Shakta Hindu and Tantric sects additionally worship her as the ultimate reality or Brahman. She's seen as the divine protector and the one who bestows moksha or liberation. Okay. Because the, the you know, um, her cutting off of the heads um, represents the, um, the severing of the mind and of the attachments. Okay. Kali is often portrayed standing or dancing on her consort, the Hindu god Shiva, who lies calm and prostrate beneath her. Kali is worshipped by Hindus throughout India. Okay. Um, now, <clears throat> let's just talk about the image of Kali for a minute. Okay. Now, she's represented in different ways. Uh, first off, she's usually represented with just one face. She's usually black or a dark blue. And um, that dark blue color... Uh, for me, is sort of reminiscent of, um, say, the Egyptian Nuit um, or the goddess Nyx in uh, Greek mythology. Or also, um, I think of, uh, well, speaking of Nuit, I think of the Thelemic Nuit, the blue-lidded daughter of sunset. You know, this idea of um, <clears throat> a blue goddess who is a deep, dark blue like the night, like the night, like the void. So there's a blueness or a blackness to Kali. Okay. And... Um, she is, um, so she's portrayed, when she's portrayed with one face, she's got a, a, a long tongue that hangs out, like a lolling tongue. And we'll talk about why that's important. She has long black hair that's usually um, unkempt and sometimes disheveled. Uh, she wears a crown. She wears garland of either severed heads or skulls, and she wears a, a belt made of severed arms. And um, <clears throat> now there's different, different, um, she's described in different ways depending on you know whether she's standing on Shiva with her left foot with her right foot um she's usually carrying a scythe or some kind of a sword in one hand she carries a severed head in another sometimes she's holding a bowl under it like it's like it catches the blood and then um she may have another hand that um <clears throat> she makes the different mudras and one of the mudras that she makes is uh, as we talked about mudras being hand gestures is that of fearlessness Okay, <clears throat> so she is, um, yeah, so she, and, and again, there are variations on this. There is a version of Kali where she appears with ten heads, and that represents the ten Mahavidyas. She's, like I said, she's kind of the central Mahavidya. Um, <clears throat> the others seem to uh, come out of her. Um, okay, so <clears throat> if we think about, okay, I, I have... Um, and I've also made a note here that her uh, her favorite flower is the uh, hibiscus. Okay, she is a. Um, I just want to see. I have. Uh, there we go. I have notes over here. Let me bring my notes over here. I have I have notes about my notes um, because there's some there's some very good stuff in some of these books that I have um, on Kali. Now I have. Um, what is it, the um, book by Elizabeth Harding called Kali, the Black Goddess of Dakineshwar. She's talking about the Dakineshwar Kali, particularly um, with respect to Sri Ramakrishna, who was a very uh, famous uh, priest of Kali and a guru who had a very intimate <clears throat> sort of personal um, relationship to Kali. Him and Sri Sharada Devi, his wife, um, the two of them were um, very, um, very, very deeply involved with Kali worship to the point that Ramakrishna was almost not seen as, as separate 
from Kali. And of course, he's very much venerated in Bengal, uh, in Bengalis, um, <clears throat> because, you know, you know, again, as, as a priest at Dakaneshwar, his successor, of course, was uh, Swami Vivekananda, who eventually came to the United States. Um, <clears throat> and Ram, and um, Ramakrishna, so this book is actually about mainly about Ramakrishna that Elizabeth Harding has written. But there, there's a big connection between the two of them, and, and she points out at certain points that Ramakrishna at some points didn't even see a separation between himself and Kali. And I, I have a certain amount of relationship to that uh, idea as well myself. This is just in my personal experience. But, um, but we'll, we'll get to that. I kind of want to get to that a little bit later. But Harding talks about um, the symbols of Kali. And she says, the name comes from Kala, or time, as we had said. The power of time which devours all. Now, that brings me back to the idea of creation mythology. Creation myths are about how we move from the field of eternity and unity into the field of separation, which is the field of space and time. All creation myths really fundamentally are about this. The birth of worlds and how it, re it requires separation. And that's because that's the great mystery. We're subject to time and thus subject to death. We're not like the immortal gods. If you read a lot of the ancient myths, especially in the West, and, and you see it in the East as well, um, <clears throat> it's this idea that, um, you know, the gods, are, the gods are immortal. Although in Hinduism, the gods are not necessarily immortal. Um, FYI. Um, there are, some of them are subject to birth and death. Uh, something, I mean, they represent certain qualities, but you will have stories where, you know, gods might die and become human or, or become, you know, take on some other kind of a form. Uh, you don't see that in the West. Uh, in the West, the gods are referred to as immortal, you know, like the Gilgamesh. You know, life the gods kept for themselves, death they gave to, to mortals. And that's where the word mortal comes from, mortality, um, the idea of death. So she is sort of, you know, embodies that mystery of the fact that life requires death, okay? And so she is, uh, so creation and destruction is a very, very fine line. And Kali would be part of that dissolution process. We have this idea that, you know, when we come into the world, um, object relations theory teaches us that we'll be eventually, first, we don't see ourselves as separate from the mother necessarily, um, but that over time, infants, you know, they, they start to get a sense of who they are as a separate being. And as you grow up, you develop your own identity. Um, and some people would say that's why teenagers are so obnoxious is because they're, um, you know, they, they're separating themselves from their family. They're making themselves out to be individuals, okay? We, we focus on separation. And in the West, we're very much focused on separation. Uh, we live in a capitalistic society that says, you know, it's all about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and doing it on your own and being independent, right? Um, now, you know, there's nothing, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but that's just one piece of the puzzle. Then the other has to do with sort of that recollapsing back into the mother. This is why I think that um, psychoanalysis, at least depth psychology, um, you know, Jung's type of thing, there's this idea of, um, you know, the, the mother is something that one turns to for protection. It's the, it's the womb, it's the, safe, it's the safety and the softness of the womb and the nurturing of the mother. But the mother, there's also that, that, that fear of um, one's individuality being swallowed up. So Kali really represents this swallowing process, but it's not, um, it's not really viewed as a negative because the idea is that your mind, which is the cause of your suffering and the cause of your anxiety, you know, I am this, I want this, I'm that, you know, um, that's them and I don't like this and I do like that and I don't, it, it eventually it cuts all of that away. 
the severing of the head is a symbol of cutting all of that away until eventually, you know, you, you re-reach that state where <clears throat> you're kind of beyond all of that, you know, and, and that, is, that is a state that's actually beyond all thought. So it's not something, um, sometimes they refer to that as the um, uh, <clears throat> uh, mahasamadhi, you know, it's, it's um, that, that state. You can reach a samadhi state through meditation uh, in, in your life. And many, many gurus and teachers do, or people who, you know, maybe who are meditative practice. Although I, what I have found is you don't necessarily have to practice anything. You could still potentially experience the state of samadhi. But that, that is a state that is beyond all thought. It's like you're, it's just a state of being where you know that everything just is. And it's, it's impossible to really put um, into words in a way that is meaningful. You just kind of have to experience it, okay? But, but Kali is sort of a representation of that, that dissolution, that, that dissolution of the ego, of the I, I, I. Um, and again, we're not saying that the I, I, I is somehow bad or evil. It's just that as things come into being, they also pass out of being, okay? It's just part of the process. In the West, we're not very accepting of that. Um, we tend to think of death as something unnatural. We get that from Christianity, you know, Christ conquers death, you know. Um, but that's not really the way it's seen in other places. Okay, so, um, okay, so she, that's about the name. She's the power, okay, the setting, uh, Elizabeth Harding says, a power that destroys um, should be depicted in terms of awe-inspiring terror. Kali is found in the cremation grounds amid dead bodies. She's standing in a challenging posture on the prostate body of her husband, Shiva. And there's various stories that describe that particular thing, um, that particular um, posture, and I'll get into that. Kali cannot exist without him, and Shiva cannot reveal himself without her. She is the manifestation of Shiva's power and energy, or as they say, Shiva without Kali is Shava, just a, just a corpse. Uh, her complexion. While Shiva's complexion is pure white, Kali is the color of the darkest night, a deep bluish black. As a limitless void, Kali has swallowed up everything without a trace, hence she is black. Her hair? Her luxuriant hair is disheveled and thereby symbolizes Kali's boundless freedom. Another interpretation says that each hair is a jiva, or an individual soul, and all souls have their roots in Kali. Okay, eyes. She has three eyes. The third one stands for wisdom. Her tongue is protruding, a gesture of, she says, a gesture of coyness, because she unwilling, unwittingly stepped on the body of her husband, Shiva. Um, a more philosophical interpretation, Kali's tongue symbolizing the rajas, the color red or activity, is held by her teeth, symbolizing sattva, the color of white or spirituality. Um, there's another interpretation of the lolling tongue in, in Tantra, and but again, I, I have that a little further on in this podcast. Um, she's generally depicted with four arms. The posture of her right arm pro, uh, promises fearlessness and boons, while her left arm holds a bloody sword and a freshly severed, severed bleeding human head. Uh, looking at the Kali's right... Um, now, now again, this is Elizabeth Harding. We see good and then we see bad. Well, I don't think that that's correct. Um, I just think you're seeing, um, she's showing you the aspect of death, but she's also saying to you, don't fear, fear not. Okay. Her dress, Kali, is naked, clad in space, except for a girdle of human arms cut off at the elbow and a garland of 50 skulls or heads. The arms represent the capacity for work, and Kali wears all work, action, potential work, and the results therefore thereof around her waist. The 50 skulls that make up her garland represent the 50 letters of the alphabet, the manifest state of sound from which all creation evolved. Okay, so that's um, 
her interpretation of the symbolism of Kali, with a little bit of my own. Um, now, uh, okay, so, um, and, and Kali, by the way, she's also associated with the hibiscus flower, the red hibiscus, um, is generally what is offered to Kali. She's, um, it's uh, um, certainly the redness, the red color uh, that she's associated with. And the very um, <clears throat> sort of opening, unusual shape of that flower. Something very sexual about the hibiscus, actually. Um, but that is that is the favorite flower of, of the goddess Kali. Okay. Um, now, her is a slayer of demons, okay? That mala of heads that represents cutting off the mind as our never-ending stream of thoughts, okay? The thought it's cause of our sadness, depression, and anxiety, okay? Um... And the stories about her are said to have uh, arising from her independence from her husband, okay, Shiva, as she's often considered a manifestation of Shakti or Parvati. Sometimes you'll you'll hear about them, you know, um, you know, when when they become angry or when they are, um, you know, otherwise feel um, conflicted, they will um, they will appear uh, in that uh, to appear in that black form as Kali, and of course Kali does appear in the Devi Mahatmyam too. She as a slayer of demons, particularly she is the slayer of Rakta Bija, the uh, the seed of desire. Um, great symbolism there. Um, that's the story, and I think I told this in the second uh, tantra intro, where she, um, you know, where Rakta Bija, he's the one demon that they can't kill because every time Durga tries to kill him or any of the gods, he, you know, more of him, his blood just spills and it just makes more of him. That's the boon that he was granted from Shiva, that he, you know, if, if he spilled a drop of his blood, it would make more of him. So Kali uses her long tongue to suck, you know, to drink up the blood. And then she, then eventually he is, he is killed because he has no, there's no, there's no blood left. She's, she sucked it all up. And um, we see Kali um, in a form in that also as Chamunda, the slayer of Chunda and Munda, passion and anger. So what do we see her slaying? Passion, anger, desire. She is the goddess that swallows all of that up and has no effect on her. Um, so she is, uh, so in that sense, you know, while she is sometimes associated with violence and destruction, she's also associated with, you know, people uh, invoke her for protection against evil. Okay. Um... And Calcutta, now it's called Kolkata, is actually the land of Kali. Um, we had talked about the toe of Shakti falling down. Um, you know, in the, these particular areas, yeah, this is this, um, because in some versions of that story of, um, um, of Kali, uh, when she, you know, um, <clears throat> now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Dakshina again, and it's not, it's Daksha, it's not Dakshina, I keep doing that. <laughs> Dakshina actually is like a gift. Um, Daksha, who is the progenitor, in some versions, Shakti's father, um, when he insults Shiva, some, in some versions, she actually turns into Kali and then destroys, um, the whole sacrifice and then, you know, it sort of, you know, collapses into the self-immolation. So in some versions, um, an angry Shakti or a, a, a destructive Shakti is Kali. Um, but she is particularly honored in Bengal. Most of my friends who I know from Bengal uh, have a Kali shrine in their house. Okay, and there is, um, and they, you know, and they go and they go to the Kali temples. So um, you know, so she is, so so she's kind of she's got all of these different um, references. The earliest place we see her referred to um, comes from about the year 600 CE. Okay, in some of the medieval texts, she is she is again seen as this kind of um, 
protective figure against evil. Um, and a lot of her, um, if you look, if you look at some of the um, representations of her in the Devi Mahatmayam I mean, in the in drawings or art, okay. And I'm going to try to include some of these in the YouTube version of this. Um, she's portrayed as emaciated, okay. Sometimes she's wearing a tiger skin. Uh, she's black in color. She has fangs. She has red teeth. Um, she wears garland of the decapitated heads. Um, and oftentimes she's also, especially um, when she is, I'm going to say, conflated with Chamunda. I think there's some differences between them, uh, even though they are extremely similar and maybe in some ways represent the same, very similar force. Uh, but sometimes she's often portrayed as sitting on the back of a ghost or a corpse and roams the cremation grounds. Okay. Uh, now, when she's standing on Shiva, at least one of the more popular stories associated with this, and there and there's different varieties of it that I have read, but kind of the core story is that she is, um, she you know she she's on a rampage destroying the world. She has been set in in motion you know um, against the um, <clears throat> again against either the demons or against in some cases against Daksha, um, and so she starts destroying everything in her path. And um, <clears throat> she's going to actually destroy the entire world and the universe if she's not stopped. So in that version, Shiva lays down in front of her. And uh, when she steps on him and then recognizes him as her husband, uh, some people will say, oh, then her tongue lolls out, almost like she's ashamed, like, oops, I should, I should stop, you know? Like that, that she, the presence of Shiva underneath her after she puts her foot on him, then that, that kind of stops and she turns back into her more benign form. Okay, that's that's one version of the story. I, I don't, um, <clears throat> I don't know that Kali is ever ashamed of anything, and I don't know that she should be, but she is, you know, but she is stopped that way. And it reminds me a little bit of the Egyptian story of um, the goddess Sekhmet, who uh, also is set in motion by Ra, the sun god. Um, you know, when the gods are plotting against him, she goes on a rampage and starts destroying everything. You know, it's like a bloodbath. Um, and there's just blood everywhere, and they can't, but nobody, but they can't stop her. Ra can't stop her. So finally what they do is they take beer and they dye it red to look like blood because she's bloodthirsty. And she drinks it, and then she gets gets drunk and passes out, basically. <laughs> Different story from Kali, but similar idea of a this, this feminine force on the rampage that needs to be stopped. And um, so eventually, you know, they're stopped, and then, um, you know, her, her more benign creative form is you know takes takes precedence again so um <clears throat> it's about keeping it in balance it's not about necessarily one being better than the other so when she's she's too out of control her husband um you know but again he, he does that by laying down in front of her he doesn't you know he doesn't fight with her he doesn't you know there are stories supposedly of him shiva and shakti getting into arguments or, or fighting or shiva and parvati and then her taking the form of kali um, or the form of the Mahavidyas. So there's, there's that aspect as well. But, um, so that, that, that tension with Shiva, she's, um, and, and some, and in some versions of the stories, um, Shiva's actually, he becomes bored with Parvati and he's not, doesn't find her interesting unless she takes the form of Kali because that, that, that's what stimulates or arouses him. It's very, it's very interesting. Um, now another thing about Kali is that she is associated with the outside or the borderlands. Um, kind of similar to some of the other matrikas, she's, um, and also like the Santa Muerte, by the way, 
She's worshipped by lower castes and by criminals. Um, certainly that's the way she's portrayed in some of the earlier uh, texts. Um, and, you know, and, and so this is something to think about as well. She is, she is a goddess that is very close to the earth. Um, I have often thought about, um, and I think I talked about this in the Santa Muerte episode, about how poverty is often also viewed with a kind of fear because a poverty is a kind of death in itself. Um, there's a living a moment to moment. There's not a security. <clears throat> there's, you know, you don't know where the next meal might come from, for instance. Um, and one might more be more subject. There, there, there's a lack of safety there. There's a danger. Okay, so, so it, it makes sense that she is a deity associated with this. Um, there's some discussion of her... Uh, temples and so forth, um, where they, they, you know, when they talk about building a Kali temple, that, you know, it should be built, you know, far away, um, and should be built near the cremation grounds. Now, that's not, that doesn't always happen, um, and that's not always the case, but there, there was certainly the conception that she was a goddess that, um, her associations with death, I, I'm reminded of the Romans who had great respect for the dead, but they always put everything, including all that, you know, the worship of that, them, and of, um, any gods associated with death in the underworld outside the city limits. Uh, even when they worshipped uh, Vulcan, which is the, the volcano god, uh, that worship took place outside because you didn't want elements of death and destruction in your own actual community. You'd, you'd put it on the outside because you're like, yeah, we respect you, but we really don't want you like being part of our daily life. So there's that kind of an element of um, something that's out on the border. Okay, so there's a liminality to the goddess Kali. Um, okay, so let me just talk about some common conceptions because there's there's a tremendous amount of misconception about Kali and what she is, especially in the West, even among people who claim to be devotees of um, of Hinduism. And I don't necessarily mean people who are born into Hinduism, although it might mean that. Occasionally I have people who go, ooh, Kali, you know, like they're scared. And I'm like, well, you know... You you've been immersed enough in that tradition that you should not be scared of her, or they they worship her in in forms that look so much more benign. Uh, there are versions of Kali where she's very pretty, actually. Um, she's she's got that blue black skin, and her eyes are very soft. But I'm like, no, that's not really her essence. I mean, I guess there could be an aspect of her that uh, the Bhadra Kali aspect that could that could um, that is more auspicious. Um, but. Um, <clears throat> But, but she's meant to be terrifying, okay? And so therefore in the West, because we are not used to these kinds of conceptions, because we associate, you know, death and that kind of thing with something negative, she's often viewed as demonic, okay? And in a certain sense, it depends, again, gets back to how you're defining the term demonic. Um, when we think of demons, um, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're involved in any of the Western magical traditions, or particularly if you're involved with uh, the Goetia, um, you know, if you do any, any deep study into where these particular beings come from, oftentimes they are the old forces, the elemental forces of the earth. They are those, those, those very powerful forces, um, of life and death that we would like to have control over, but we don't. Um, and, um, and that, and that frighten us and that we feel they need to be appeased so that they don't destroy us. Okay. And, um, I mean, now, of course, the originally the term daemon actually refers to kind of a mediating spirit between you and the gods. So there's, there's um, that complicating aspect as well. But if people think of demonic as something evil, 
Um, that's that's really too far of a reductive and simplistic view. Kali's not evil. She may she may encompass things that are evil, but it's her nature is not evil. Her nature is destructive, and that doesn't necessarily mean evil. It means you need to be careful um, how you deal with that energy, um, and it, and it is a much more forceful and aggressive kind of energy. Um, I mean, but at the same time, she is kind of a protective mother figure, um, at the same time, you know, kind of in the way a mother bear might be protective. So, um, yeah, so take the idea of her being demonic with a grain of salt. Um, again, if you're coming from certain traditions, um, you know, that, that might be kind of seen that way, but, but she is not a demon in the sense that most people think of demons, Okay. So get 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 rid of that idea because she is actually an extremely benefit in in spite of her apparently malefic aspect she's actually very beneficent um in in what um in what involvement with her actually brings to you and brings to um your life to your ability you know to your 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 ability to to navigate life really um I've I've not um things changed for me a lot when I used to, when I embraced Kali worship because it was like, you know, that, that just completely changed my whole outlook on a lot of things. And, uh, I mean, you can still get, 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 get lost and caught up in other things. You don't necessarily get entirely away from it. But, um, the meditative experiences I've had from, you know, doing Kali pujas and from being involved, you know, it, it, it points out to me, it, it's life changing. I mean, it points out to me that there are things that are, um, you know, that, that, that life is absolutely, you know, there's a lot that's not what it appears to be. And there's so much more than what we see. And, um, you know, and, and it kind of helps take away that fear of, um, you know, of change, of death, of, uh, of dissolution like that. You kind of start to lose your fear of it when you engage in those practices. And like I said, like I've said before, she's a very immediate goddess. She's somebody, um, and I and it's not just me. I have heard stories from other uh, Bengals where you know Kali, Kali talking to them all the time. Of course, some people consider that inauspicious. They say, "Oh yes, it was like Mother Kali was talking to her every day, and then she died a week later." Well, you know, I don't. You know, I feel almost like that's supposed to be some kind of a cautionary tale about her energy. But I'm like, no. Um, she, you know, I I've been talking to her for years, and I mean, well, I don't know. Who knows? Not dead yet. You never know when that'll happen. But I don't think that that's that's a necessary conclusion. I think it's more of a warning that that's her energy is extremely powerful. But um, her very direct involvement with you doesn't necessarily, you know, preclude that. It just means that. Um, but but you could still be on in for a wild ride. So uh, just keep that in mind. Um, okay. Now the idea of Kali is demanding blood sacrifice. Well, a lot of gods demanded blood sacrifice. I would not say that that's necessarily a regular part of her worship. Now in Calcutta, uh, in, or Kolkata, I'm sorry, and in those places, probably they sacrifice goats and, and other things to Kali. Um, <clears throat> you know, and blood is definitely part of some of these, um, these types of worship. Blood has a binding effect. Um, so, and I would say that if somebody's worshiping Kali, they, you know, like on you know, on your own, um, blood sacrifice is not required in any way. Human sacrifice is not, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I can't speak to whether it was really done years ago, possibly, especially if you're talking about people on the borderlands and criminals and so forth, just like you've heard it, you sometimes share about that with the Santa Muerte too. 
But I would not say that any of those kinds of things are required for worship of Kali. Um, you don't, you don't, you know, first of all, those things are illegal. But secondly, I mean, I don't, I have not heard, um, I think there was that whole discussion of the thuggies in the 19th century. And you get that idea, um, the thuggies were supposed to be a, a Kali cult um, that the British were trying to put down. And, uh, and the Beatles movie Help is kind of based on this. Um, because, um, it's funny. I mean, the, the movie, it's supposed to be a funny movie and it's got great music and stuff, but I, I, I think since I've become a Kali worshiper, I find that movie a little bit offensive, at least that aspect of it. I don't, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily intended to be that, but, um, you know, like there's a Kali cult that has to make their daily blood sacrifice, whoever's wearing this special sacrificial ring. And of course, Ringo Starr ends up with it. And so that's, you know, they're chasing him around trying to sacrifice him. It's just, it's weird. Um, but it's not, um, yeah, but that was, but it's the Kali cult. And, but that kind of tends to diminish Kali or just tends to make her look very demonic. And you can get, you can easily get the wrong impression from that. Um, I don't know of anybody, I've not heard, I haven't heard of any, I mean, probably not since the thuggies, I've not heard of any kind of uh, human sacrifice to Kali. Uh, there are people who might um, let their own blood um, in, in Kali rituals. Um, now, um, when it comes to my guru, her swamis have said, you know, don't don't do that, even if you're tempted to. And their their reasoning is that it it kind of binds you to the deity in a way that maybe you're not prepared for. And I would say that's true in general. Um, using blood in a ritual does uh, have a binding effect with whatever um, spirit god or entity that you're you're getting involved with. So um, use caution about about doing that. Um, unless that's, I mean, and some people are totally going in that direction, in which case that's, that might be what they do. But, um, not, I would not say, uh, that's necessarily a step. I wouldn't say it's a necessary or required step. Okay. I suppose, depending on, on why you're, you're uh, involved, but if you're just doing daily devotions and so forth, I would not, I have never found that necessary. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Yes, and I think I make a reference here to the um, Manasara Silpa uh, Shastra, which is an architectural work that describes Kali's temples, and that, that it kind of supports the idea of um, Kali as being involved in blood sacrifice. That's a very old work, um, probably from between the years 600 and 800, I think. So, but again, you have to recall context. I mean, this, this sacrifice went on a lot in a lot of different places. I would not say that I know of any modern Kali worshippers in modern temples. Now, again, in India, there might be animal sacrifice. There's certainly no human sacrifice. And um, and again, one cannot speak to people who were on the borderlands just kind of doing their own thing and, and having maybe their own kinds of interpretations. That I can't, I can't speak to. I can tell you that temples in an official capacity do not do that. And in the United States, I don't even think that there's animal sacrifice. So... Um, so just uh, uh, sort of clear that up. Um, okay, so some of the stories. Um, now, in the Devi Mahatmayam, uh, Kali comes from the third eye of an angry Durga. She, and she's often conflated with Chamunda here. Because the idea is that she is uh, she's swallowing the army of armies of passion and anger. Chunda, which is anger, and Mun, uh, Ch Chunda, which is passion, and uh, Munda, which is anger. 
Um, or actually, it's probably the reverse, because because uh, Chundi has to do with with anger and and, fu- and fury. So Munda is probably passion. And so they say that um, <clears throat> this is how Chamunda gets her name. Now, there's that's disputed in some accounts because Chamunda is said to be very, very, very old, perhaps are older than these scriptures. Kali herself is probably older than 600 CE. That's my guess. I think she's been around in um, Indian tradition for much longer than that, maybe in different forms. Um, <clears throat> but I, I'm going to get into that when I, when I do a, I'm going to have a whole podcast on Chamunda. So we'll, we'll focus on that there. Uh, I told you the story of Raktabija spilling the seed of desire. That is one of the very famous stories. And again, um, there's that whole thing of what does it mean for a goddess to drink the blood of a demon? Does she then become like the demon? Um, and so that's, uh, you know, that's that's the question one toys with. But again, um, these are the forces that operate in our world. Um, and, you know, how, how do you deal with those forces? You know, how, how do you confront those forces? And I think you need to start by saying these are not necessarily evil forces. They're not necessarily the best for you at different times, depending. Um, Kali is a force that I would say, um, and again, it, it depends. I, I, I come from my own experience. I find that um, Kali brings um, a level of clarity, um, one, it brings an ability to deal with, um, you know, with, with adversity that you might not have if you if you take this very strict good and evil um, view of the world. And my experiences with her haven't been what I would consider to be negative at all. I mean, even if negative things happen, um, there's there's a different, it gives you a different way of approaching things. Okay. Um, so yes, and I mentioned the story of Daksha, the immolating sati, when, when um, She's angry that uh, Shiva, um, you know, is insulted by Daksha. Um, to, to, she rubs her nose in anger, and then Kali appears. Okay, so there's those are kind of some of the big uh, scriptural stories. That said, Kali appears in a lot of places. Um, in Tantra, um, the, the, the tantric writer um, Abhinavagupta uh, has said that reality is the interaction of two principles, which are Shiva and Kali. Okay, in this case, that would be creation and destruction. Uh, the Tantraloka mentions 13 forms of Kali, which are Dakshina Kali, Maha Kali, uh, Smashana Kali, Guya Kali, Badra Kali, Chamunda Kali, Siddha Kali, Hamsa Kali, and Kamaka Kali. Okay, and um, I think I have a little bit of a description here. Let's see if I can provide you with that. Um, let's see. My book on uh, the Mahavidyas here. Okay. Um, okay. Um, Dakshina Kali. Um, Dakshina has to do with what's right. Okay. So th- sometimes this has to do with the Kali with putting her right foot onto Shiva. Um, in this book, it says the name Dakshina Kali, according to contemporary author, implies Kali's preeminent position. It comes from the story that when Yama, king of the dead who lives in the south, Dakshina, um, that's another word, um, heard Kali's name, he ran away in fear and ever since has been unable to take her devotees to his kingdom. Uh, that is, that worship of Kali overcomes death. Uh, so she overwhelms the ruler of the south, who is Yama, and is thus called Dakshina Kali. Um... Let's see if I have the other. 
other forms that are mentioned here. Um, there's a Vamakali who said to be extremely dangerous and rarely worshipped except by people of heroic nature. And depictions of her are rare. Um, let's see. Um, there's other ones in here. So I, I, reading through here, I don't need to go through. They're repeating some of the stuff in here about her, her black form and her forearms and so forth, which I don't need to really um, repeat here. Um, let's see. It's funny. You have to forgive me too. I'm suffering from a headache right now, so I'm trying to do this, and I feel like my my head is spinning while I'm doing this. Um, okay, Guyakali is described as having sunken eyes, fearful teeth, constantly moving tongue, matted hair, and a large belly, uh, replete with serpent ornaments and companions. Okay, uh, the symbolism of the serpents is complex, but in this case, it indicates Kali's cosmic supremacy. Like Vishnu, for example, she's protected by Ananta, um, Ananta, which is like the cobra uh, deity, which indicates that she's primordial creative force. Um, many of the dhyana mantras are of different forms of Kali. Siddha Kali drinks blood from a skull held in her left hand. Guya Kali and Raska Kali, sometimes called Maha Kali, sip wine. Smashana Kali carries a skull full of wine in her right hand and is said to be intoxicated all the time. That's also having to do with when she puts her left foot on Shiva, Smashana Kali. Um, although there are several different impossible interpretations of this characteristic, perhaps the dawning of liberated consciousness in which restrictions and limitations of convention are overcome. Yes, because certainly drinking of the blood has a lot to do with um, imbuing the life force, but the drinking of wine has to do with, um, in the similar way of Dionysus worship, the liberating of one from uh, convention. Because when you drink, supposedly, in, vina verita, in vino veritas, right? You know, you, in wine there is truth. Um... Okay, so that's what I have from here. Um, they mention um, the Nirvana Tantra mentions, um, says that Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva all arise from Kali. Okay, so that's her again as this primal force. Um, and there's this tantric practice related to Kali of undertaking five forbidden things, the panchatattva, wine, meat, fish, parched grain, and having sexual intercourse to undo the idea of duality and purity. So this is the, again, if we talk about this idea of separation and then reintegration, um, by the way, just as an aside, the word religion comes from the, the Latin verb um, religare, which is uh, to bind or to tie back. So it's the idea of... You know, we're, we've moved from eternity into the field of separation, and then we, you know, sort of reunite at, at some form. You know, we dissolve our um, our earthly form. So it's rather um, interesting, uh, the idea of Kali as the one providing that. Um, the Kapuradi Stotra portrays Kali as young and beautiful and the supreme mistress of the universe identical with the five elements and in union with Shiva, okay? She creates and destroys world, okay? Um, though she's often portrayed as hag-like with an emaciated body and sunken breasts, she's also very heavily associated with um, sexuality. Uh, the Sahasranama Stotra has many, many very sexual names for Kali, okay? Uh, she's free from societal norms. And this is where I was going to go. Uh, Jeffrey Kripal mentions um, that Kali's tongue represents sexual gratification and also perhaps consumption of the forbidden or the polluted. Um, I have another note here to look at this, uh, this book. Um, let's see. Um, 
Kripal argues that Kali's tongue denotes the act of tasting or enjoying what society regards as forbidden, foul, or polluted, her indiscriminate enjoyment of all the world flavors, as it were. Um, okay. <clears throat> so, let me see where I'm at here. Okay. Um, and then, okay, again, if we're getting deeper into Tantra, Kali is Adi Mahavidya. She reveals the ultimate truth. Um, and it was also noted that she has, um, unbound, her unbound hair might, it's something also that, um, women would, Indian women would do when they were menstruating. Okay. So that, and menstruation in, in, in cultures is often associated with pollution. So, and with wildness. So that was another, even though we've never seen a menstruating Kali, you know, although who knows, right? But it's, um, that, that's kind of the idea. Um, now, um, this was in, again, this is in the Mahavidya's book, um, Tantric Visions of the Divine Feminine by David Kinsley. He says, uh, it is interesting to note that most insiders, that is the native Hindus, prefer to interpret Kali allegorically, while most outsiders, that are what, that is, Westerners, prefer to focus on her surface attributes, appearances, and habits. Um... And he says, I do not think the two approaches contradict each other. In many cases, they are complementary. It is clear, however, that many Hindus, even Tantric Hindus, who are supposedly intent on subverting the mentality of the status quo, are uncomfortable with interpretations of Kali that too strongly emphasize her outrageous, shocking features and habits as central to her significance. And a lot of it depends on how you view those shocking things. Um... So, you know, those shocking things, you know, might might be there for a reason. You know, it's not always that they are, um, you know, they may be looking to shock you out of something or, um, you know, dispel the, you know, she's there to dispel the illusion of, um, of, of some of the niceties that we see, some of the maya. She is maya in a way, but she also, dis, you know, the cutting off of the head is the destroying of that maya, of that, that illusion of what we, how we think things are. Okay, so let me sort of put all this together um, just to kind of finish up here. Um, I kind of want to keep this to, you know, a little under an hour if I can, even though there's so much you could say about Kali, but many of her other aspects I think we're going to be addressing in subsequent podcasts when we talk about these, these other, the Mahavidyas and the other aspects which are related to her. So, okay, so we've got Kali as a goddess of time. Okay, the importance of time and kind of the understanding of um, life and death, and connected to that, Kali as blackness, as void. Okay, as that abyss that um, represents what we don't know, that represents what's unmanifest. Okay, as well as what's manifest. It's the other side of, of what we see. Um, there's Kali as Durga. Okay, Kali as a manifestation of Durga who is the goddess who um, <clears throat> brings clarity, the goddess who saves us from the demons of the ego in the sense of, you know, the way that passion, anger, anxiety, addiction, desire, the way, not, not that any of these things have to be bad in and of themselves. The demons always don't necessarily start out as being um, problematic. It's just that the more power they gain, the, the more problematic they become because now it, begin, it comes to excess. So when, <clears throat> when it... So Kali comes when, you know, she is um, a violent and frenetic goddess, but she comes when things are out of control, okay? Um, and then the idea of Kali as spouse of Shiva, as Sati, as Shakti, or Parvati, um, and as the co-creator of the universe, in which case uh, now the central goddess of the Sri, Shak uh, uh, the Sri Chakra is um, Kameshwari, 
but in a certain sense, that is also an aspect of Kali because she is destructive, but she's also extremely sexual at the same time and thus creative in that respect. Um, <clears throat> now it's, um, let's see, I wanted to talk a little bit about Ramakrishna's experience of Kali because this is where I think the importance is. We can get lost in how she looks. Um, we can see how she is sort of the quintessential image of the, um, uh, how do I want to put this, you know, of this sort of dark feminine that is both um, protective and destructive at the same time. Um, but what does it happen to, what does it mean to meditate on Kali? What does it mean to become immersed in Kali? And um, in, uh, this is uh, Ajit Mukherjee's book, Kali, the Feminine Force. He talks about um, Ramakrishna. He said, um, I'll, I'll just read this page. Devotion to the goddess as a means of attaining experience of supreme reality is especially exemplified in the life of Ramakrishna, the great saint of 19th century India who served Mother Kali at the Dakineshwar Kali Temple in North Calcutta. Ramakrishna had described how the whole current of his mind began to flow towards the mother, how he longed to come face to face with her in an agony of restlessness, vowed he would kill himself unless she appeared to him. At the peaking of his longing, he felt, he said, as if someone had taken hold of my heart and mind and was wringing them like a wet towel. My eyes fell on the sword in the wall of mother's temple. I made up my mind to end my life at that very moment. Like one mad, I ran and caught hold of it when suddenly I had the wonderful vision of the mother and fell down unconscious." I did not know what happened then in the external world, how that day and the next slipped away. But in my heart of hearts, there was a flowing, a current of intense bliss never experienced before, and I had the immediate knowledge of the light that was the mother. It was as if houses, doors, temples, and everything else vanished from my sight, leaving no trace whatsoever. However far and in what direction I looked, I saw a continuous succession of evulgent waves rushing at me from all sides with great speed. I was caught in that rush, panting for breath, and I collapsed unconscious. So, um, and then after that, he perceives everything as the divine mother. Um, and that, that really is what it gets down to. Worship of Kali, I, I, I can't say I've had Ramakrishna's experience. I've had an experience that's quite similar to that, at which all of a sudden you recognize the unity of everything and everything just is that. Everything just is Kali. It, it's hard to explain, but... Um, that vision, you know, if it's if it's asked for in a spirit of devotion, a lot of times it's given. Now I can't I can't swear to anything. As we've said, you know, those things are often gifts. You don't know when you're going to to get them. Um, but I kind of want to end here with Elizabeth Harding's discussion of um, Kali's boons. This is again relates to Ramakrishna. The devotee who send renders to the Divine Mother obtains everything: joy in life and joy in death. All becomes bliss and all becomes play. Kali's boon is one when man confronts or accepts her and the reality she dramatically conveys to him. The image of Kali, in a variety of ways, teaches man that pain, sorrow, death, decay, and destruction are not to be overcome or conquered by denying them or explaining them away. Pain and sorrow are woven into the texture of man's life so thoroughly that to deny them is ultimately futile and foolish. For man to realize the fullness of his being, for man to exploit his potential as a human being, he must finally accept his dimension of existence. Kali's boon is freedom, and the freedom of the child to revel in the moment, and it is won only after confrontation or acceptance of death. 
Ramakrishna's childlike nature does not stem from his ignorance of things as they really are, but from his realization of things as they really are. He is able to revel in the moment, for he knows that to live any other way is a denial of things as they are. To ignore death, to pretend that one is physically immortal, to pretend that one's ego is the center of things, is to provoke Kali's mocking laughter. To confront or accept death, on the contrary, is to realize a mode of being that can, be, that can delight and revel in the play of the gods. To accept one's mortality is to be able to act superfluously, to let go, to be able to sing, dance, and shout. To win Kali's boon is to become childlike, to be flexible, open, and naive like a child. It is to act and be like Ramakrishna, who delighted in the world as Kali's play, who acted without calculation and behaved like a fool or a child. And there it is. I don't think I could have said it better. That's kind of, that is, that is the boon of Kali. And it, it, that's the hard thing I sometimes have a hard time conveying to people is that, um, immersing oneself in that practice, eventually that is what you come to. You realize the, the joyfulness of things. You see things as they really are and you let go of your judgment of them. Okay. Now I'm not going to pretend that I've, I've perfectly absorbed this in my life, but, um, I do see a marked difference between myself, between that and people in my family and just other people that I know in the way that they perceive the way things are. And I can kind of come to this be and I feel like it's my experiences with Kali and with other dark mothers that, that kind of bring me to that. But that is the central importance of embracing the dark mother. You, em you, you embrace and understand things for what they are instead of trying to conquer them, overcome them, or reject them. And this kind of applies to the dark feminine in general. This is something to be embraced, accepted, and, ch and then because your life changes completely as soon as you do. And with that, I'm going to once again say thanks very much to my patrons on patreon.com slash chthonia. If you would like to become a patron, um, please... Uh, you know, please, please go there and, um, you know, and, and pledge whatever, you know, you would, would like, whatever monthly amount you would like. Um, and uh, like I said, Chthonia.net is still in the works and under construction. I'm, I'm kind of putting that together with some other things right now. So um, in the meantime, all the content is there uh, that, that you would need, all, all previous podcasts. Uh, they're also on metapsychosis.com slash series slash Chthonia. And uh, I'm also present on Facebook, Instagram, uh, and Twitter. Um, it's, uh, you know, one is, uh, is Chthonia uh, on um, YouTube, and on YouTube is Chthonia. Um, I'm Chthonia Podcast and the other places. I think it's um, one word on Instagram and Twitter and two words on Facebook. So, uh, you know, thanks again for listening and uh, until next week. <laughs>